may remain standing. If you're not, please stand for the reading of the word. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account for your mismanagement because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I am not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I will do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe me? Oh, my master, 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That's the word of the Lord. Yes, please have a seat. Good morning. Uh, my name is Tim. I'm the lead pastor here, and I missed my hour of sleep last night. And uh, can we just give ourselves a hand for being uh, so on top of it and awake and getting up and being someplace? Okay, that was that was not a great applause for ourselves. That we we that's which is fine. We're tired, but that's that's understandable. Hey, um, <clears throat> uh, Jesus says some really weird things. Everything you just heard Howard read uh, were words from Jesus. 
Um, and so we're going to get to those in just a minute. Um, they're very strange and odd today. And Jesus is actually talking about something far more important than money and divorce. But those are the things that we, we heard as if you were listening uh, to Howard read that just then. And so we'll get to that in just a moment. Two quick things, um, but really important things. Uh, the first, if you were not here last week, um, Adam and I uh, shared at the end of our gathering uh, that he is stepping off of staff and out of his pastoral role uh, here at Mosaic uh, in just a couple weeks. And so um, there's a story behind that. If you, if you weren't there, you can go back and watch it last week. He's taking a full-time job opening up a new site for the Salvation Army in Washington County that are going to serve families and individuals at need, in need in a, in a ton of different ways. Um, and Adam got to kind of share what led him to that and how that came about. Um, and so he's starting that role in just a few weeks. We're going to celebrate him here uh, in uh, two Sundays from now. So March 26th on Sunday after our gathering, we're going to have a party uh, for Adam. We get to celebrate him and Dana and the girls. Um, they're staying a part of our church family, and Adam's actually going to continue on as a part of our teaching team uh, and teach here and there for the, you know, the next kind of foreseeable future. Um, but that is a transition that's happening on our staff, and he is stepping out of his full-time role here as a pastor. And so, uh, Adam, we love you and we miss, uh, we will miss your just input into the life of our community and the way that you've given your life and poured yourself in, into us has just been fantastic. So love it and we're going to miss that. So we get to celebrate Adam in two weeks. Um, you can celebrate him today by coming and giving him a hug or a high five after the gathering as well, um, unless he sprints out that door and is faster than you are. Um, second thing is this, on that same Sunday, March 26th, uh, we're going to be uh, opening up this room over here. If number of weeks we've been talking about a prayer room that we're going to do. We know that God hears our prayers, but also as we pray, we are transformed and change. And we have set aside Holy Week. Um, we didn't de designate it Holy Week. It's already that. But Palm Sunday or Triumphal Entry Sunday, which is April 2nd through Resurrection Sunday or Easter Sunday, April 9th is, is seven days. And for those seven days around the clock, we're going to be praying in this room. And so we've got a team that actually met this last week and designed what that's going to look like. They're going to be setting it up in about 10 days. Uh, and then on the 26th, we're going to have a chance to, to look at it and walk through it and start signing up uh, that day for that, those entire, I think it's like 168 hours. And so you can sign up for an hour uh, or you can be a part of the safety team that helps host people during the night. Uh, but around the clock, 24 hours a day, seven days for that week, we're going to be praying in that room. You're here more about it. There's more on our website uh, as well. But that's also happening in two weeks. You'll have a chance to see that room. Um, if you have a Bible, would you open it and find your way to Luke chapter 16? Luke chapter 16. If you're online and watching online, if you've got a Bible or, or a device, uh, if you want to find your way to Luke chapter 16, we're going to work through these 18 verses. Uh, and again, it, when we hear it read, what stands out to most of us is the talk about money, a very important part of life and divorce at the very end, which seems really random. And so we're going to work through this and see what Jesus has for us today. He was telling his disciples something. It seems very bizarre and counterintuitive, uh, but it's very important for them then and for us, us today. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to, we're going to look at those texts together. God, a few moments ago, we sang a song that declared that you are faithful and we, we want to be continuing to say that and to sing that and to know that and to, to remind ourselves of that, that you were faithful. And because you were faithful, we can actually have bright hope for tomorrow as we sung. 
when there's so many things out in our world that seem uncertain or even threatening or scary or cause fear or pain, that you call us to yourself, that you remind us that you are faithful and that we can actually have hope for tomorrow. And so God, we worship you and declare you as worthy and as good and as just and as all-powerful and all-knowing. And Holy Spirit, we invite you right now in this moment to be working and moving among us and in us and through us. Would you stir up the things in our life that we have held on to too tightly, that we have, have made in our hearts to be, to be hard and not surrendered to you in some way. Only you can do that, Holy Spirit, and so we invite you to do that now. And Jesus, you are unique. There is no one like you. There never has been. There never will be. You are alive. You are resurrected from the dead. You are living. And as we look at your words, will you help us this morning understand what it is that you are communicating, that you are telling us through your scripture? It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Two quick tech things. I got something beeping over here. I don't know if that matters. And can you start the clock up there? There it is again. Can anybody else hear it? Okay, good. It's not just me. Weird things happen when I don't get enough sleep, and I was hoping that wasn't one of them. Is it? Okay. I was, I was going to start playing something, but... Okay, I won't touch it again. I'm sorry. Yeah, you're not gonna win that game. You gotta close that. Um, the way that we talk about our vision as a church, one of the ways that we do is that saying that we wanna be a part of a movement of disciples. And when we define disciple, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? We say three things. We say one, formed by God's word, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and sent by Jesus. So. We're praying for ourselves in the different ways that we work because we realize that God has sent us into this world and one of the ways he does is through our work, we do that. We pray that the Holy Spirit would empower us because we know that we actually can't make it through this life in the way that God intends if the Holy Spirit is not alive in us and empowering us to live and be the people he's created us to be. And the first thing we say is to be formed by God's word. This is, this is what we understand to be God's word. It's, it's a book called the Bible. It's referred to it as scripture. Um, if you don't have a physical one, then you're not familiar with just how thin these pages are. And they're really thin because they have to fit a lot in that we can carry. And there's a really small type and it's a lot of words and it was written a long, long, long time ago. There is a lot in here. And yet, to be a follower of Jesus today, part of that means that this book forms us. And when we say form, what we mean is that it, it, it changes, it transforms, it informs the way that we see the world, the way that we think, that the Bible actually affects the way that we think. It actually goes deeper than that and it sinks into our heart, the place where who we are and our identity really rests. And I point to my chest because that's where we understand our heart to be, but it's not physically right there. There's a part of us, this soul, that we can't actually take out of a human body and, and, and put on a table and see physically, but there's a soul that God has created us and, and within that is, is our identity and that that would be shaped by Jesus. Not by me and you. The, the, when, when you and I start to shape our own identity, we really mess it up. And it, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't end up comparing at all 
to how God sees us and who he intends us to be and who he says we are. Our identity is given to us by, by God and we want that formed by his truth. So when we come to a passage like this that just seems odd, can we come to it together and say, God, would you form us even in these odd verses in the Bible like this and help us to see what it is that you want for us today? We're looking at a story, we're listening to a story, we're reading a story where a guy is in crisis. A guy is in crisis and he seemingly does something illegal. A manager of funds, a manager of resources, does something that to, at first blush seems like he's, he's done something irresponsible, dishonest, illegal. And we read that and we go, yeah, that was not a great call. But Jesus then applauds him. These are all Jesus' words. Jesus tells, Jesus makes up this story. It's called a parable. And it's all of his words. If you've got a, a, a red letter Bible, if you've got the words of Jesus in red, the whole section other than uh, verse 14 is all red. It's all Jesus' words. He says all of it. And he applauds and he commends this guy who is titled either the shrewd manager or the dishonest manager. And so what we're gonna do is understand and learn what is it that Jesus wants us to gain from this and why would he compliment and applaud and commend a guy who seemingly does something illegal or, or dishonest? So I mentioned he's in a crisis, but he's not just in the moment in a crisis, which he is, but, but stepping back, he's in a, in a kind of a, a time, an, an era, a, a time in history, chapter in history that is important. And Jesus gives us a clue to that at the end of, of his story. And so before we get to the specific crisis, let's look at the bigger picture of history that's going on that Jesus calls out at the very end. And it starts with this. It's the last two, two three verses of this section that was read. It starts in verse 16. So we're in chapter 16, move down to verse 16, and Jesus says this. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. And this isn't just any John, this is John the Baptist. So the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since John, or since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing their way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. So Jesus tells this bizarre story about this manager with money that seemingly does something illegal, and then he ends by saying, okay, just so we're all clear of what time we're standing in right here and what time this story took place in and, and how to think about this, is that there was a time earlier where the law and prophets uh, were really important, and then up until John, that was true. And then John the Baptist shows up, and then something changed, and John the Baptist pointed to Jesus. And then Jesus gets baptized and starts what's known as his public ministry. Jesus starts getting the word out of who he is. And he does that by teaching publicly and doing just amazing works that we call miracles. And then also kind of ruffling the feathers of the establishment of the religious leaders and the teachers of the law and those kind of things. What happened at that pivot point in history is that Jesus began sharing the good news of the kingdom of God. He says, until, up until John the Baptist was a law and prophets, but now, because I'm here, the good news of the kingdom. And what Jesus is saying is, he's announcing that God is doing something new. God's working in a new way. God is bringing more of his rule and reign into our world, which we need, and they needed then, 2,000 years ago. And so what Jesus is saying is, now that I'm here, everything's different. Everything's different, but... 
That doesn't mean the law and the prophets don't matter anymore. So then what he says is he says, it would be easier for heaven and earth just to disappear, which, you know, good luck trying to make that happen. Like that's just not gonna happen. So what he's saying is it's unlikely, it's impossible that the law and the prophets would disappear, would be made irrelevant. They're still relevant. And then he gives an example of why and how they are still relevant by doing this really bizarre couple sentences about divorce, remarriage, and adultery. Verse 18. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Each and every one of us knows someone who's been divorced. Many of us know somebody who's been remarried. And unfortunately, some of us know people who have had affairs or committed adultery, have had sexual relationships with somebody outside of their spouse, other than their spouse. Jesus is using these few lines as an example of how the law and prophets aren't abolished or go away. So what Jesus is saying, and he uses divorce, remarriage, and adultery to make his point, but what he's saying is God was doing good things in preparation for a better thing. God was doing good things and giving you the law and the prophets of pointing to a better way of existing. And now I'm here to be even more clear about it and have you taste it and experience it. For example, there's laws about divorce and remarriage and what is adultery and what is not. And what he's saying to the people, now let's think, rewind 2,000 years. Jesus is talking in the first century to a bunch of people. And the religious leaders of that time were making all sorts of little, little edits and rule changes to benefit themselves. And you may, maybe you've heard this before, but it's absolutely ridiculous and hear it again or hear it for the first time. But the religious leaders of the time would take a, a law from the law and prophets, like a man is not to divorce his wife, and they would add things to it, edit it, like unless she makes him a bad meal. So there's a rabbi or Pharisee that, that literally, literally made this up that says if, if, if a wife burns the toast at breakfast for a husband, he can divorce her. Now, that doesn't translate for us today, does it? Like, that just, that just wouldn't work. First of all, like, who makes toast anymore? No, I guess maybe people make toast. But, like, that just, doesn't, that just doesn't happen. Some of you are like, I would love some burnt toast from my spouse. Like, that would be great. Uh, others of you are like, yeah, if I even suggested this. In fact, I can't even turn my head right now and smirk because that just wouldn't go. I mean, there's all, the, like, this doesn't, it just doesn't make sense. What they were doing then were people in power, religious leaders, rabbis at the time were saying, hey, I don't like my wife. How do I get rid of her and still look good? Well, I'll just edit this rule and then I can get rid of her. Or I can benefit somebody else who wants a divorce and somebody else in power. And so I'll make a, a rule that, that works for them. There literally was another edit that was, um, if, if, and again, in our, our time of, of, of understanding male and female are equal, that wasn't true then. They didn't view one another as equal then. And so male men had power that women did not. And so they another one that, if you can believe it, is, is so outlandish is that, say, if a husband decides that his wife is no longer attractive, he can divorce her. Like, that's appalling. Jesus knows this. Jesus knows they're doing this. And he's saying, stop doing this. This is not good for you. It's certainly not good for women who then would be divorced and be walking around town with no way to provide for themselves in that culture and time. 
And so what Jesus is doing is saying, stop doing this ridiculous thing that you're doing and editing these rules to benefit yourself. Look back at the law and prophets. They were actually doing something good for you, for one another, for society as a whole. What he's saying is, in the law and prophets, he's using divorce, adultery, and remarriage to talk about this, to use it as an example, but he's saying integrity, faithfulness, fulfilling your commitments that the law and prophets pointed to and asked of you are still good here and now in the time where the good news of the kingdom is being preached. That's why he's talking about it. So when we read this and we go, oh my gosh, I know somebody who's been remarried. Are they committing adultery? Jesus, that's not his point here. His point is the law and prophets still hold true. Things are very, very different now. Divorce is still a tragic, unfortunate, negative, painful thing. Any way you slice it. And we're not to read this and then to start talking about divorce. It wasn't Jesus's point then. What he is saying is that we're in a time where the kingdom of God is coming more. And the, the things that were in the Old Testament still hold true because we're called to integrity and faithfulness and to fill our commitments. That's, those are good things. Stop abusing what you can and start looking there, but know we're in a different time. So Jesus says, we're in a time where the kingdom is coming in to our world and our reality. God is ushering his power, his rule and reign into our world more and more. And sometimes we have to look for it really closely and other times it's really obvious. Now, the crisis that this guy is in in this story is in this wider context of the kingdom have arrived. And the kingdom has arrived, but this guy has got a particular crisis and his crisis is that he's just been fired. Verse one says this, Jesus told the disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. He's firing him, so he's done. He's lost his job, but his last task that he's given is go make an account of all of the things you oversaw, all the resources you oversaw. And so he, uh, when it says that he wasted his possessions, if you were here last week or if you're familiar with the story of uh, the prodigal son is probably how it's most well known, but it's, there's two sons and a, and a father. And it says that the, the younger son uh, wasted his possessions. So he got his possessions from his dad, as we heard last week, and then he went out and he just spent them and, and they were gone. And, and we find out that he spent them not on, not on like uh, life improving endeavors. He just blew it all. He just wasted it all. And that's what this manager has done. So there's a rich man who has hired a manager to oversee his investments, basically, and his debts, people that owed him things. And he's wasted that job opportunity. And, and what it means is that he's lost a lot of money and he's done so frivolously, he's done so irresponsibly. So that's what's going on. That's his crisis, he's just been fired. So, verse three, the manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. And then he goes, aha, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their homes. So he called each of his, one of his master's donors and he asked him first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. So he cuts it in half. And then he asked the second, how much do you owe? And he says, a thousand bushels of wheat. And he replied, he told him, uh, take your bill and make it 800. So you got a 20% discount. So that's what he does. He has this great idea. What I'm going to do is I'm going to lower people's bills 
uh, and then gain favor with them. And so then, you know, tomorrow when I am unemployed, I'll, I'll have some favor with these people. Verse eight, the master, so the rich man, the rich guy calls his, his manager dishonest. And it's really important that, he, that the dishonesty is the way that he wasted his opportunity. The dishonesty is not in how he, he cut the people's bills. The dishonesty is in his prior job performance where he was wasteful, when he was frivolous, when he was irresponsible. But now, the guy who's actually out money, the rich guy, commends this manager for cutting people's bills. And he calls him shrewd. He calls him shrewd. Now, we all use the word shrewd all the time. We're, we're deeply familiar with it, so this will just be a review. But here's some words that, of what shrewd means. Shrewd means uh, sensible, uh, prudent, wise, thoughtful, discreet, creative. To be shrewd is to be creative. To be shrewd is to, is to be risky. Like I'm going I'm to take a calculated risk, but it's, it's shrewd because it's thoughtful, wise, prudent. It, it, has, it demonstrates practical skill or acumen. Uh, an intelligence or mental acquirement. And I included that just so that I sound really smart. Acquirement, I actually had to look it up because I wasn't sure if I made a typo there or not. But that just means over time acquiring mental acuity in some kind of area. So to be shrewd, we might say like uh, street smarts or getting by or thinking through a scenario and seeing into the future and what pieces you can move on the table, so to speak, to get there and set up things well for you. To be shrewd. And what was shrewd about what this guy did that the manager is actually complimenting him? Get this. He says, you had one day left of work and you gained favor with a bunch of people in town. Way to go. You don't have favor with me anymore. So you go and find it with other people. Way to go. That's shrewd. The other thing that he did that was shrewd was that he pinned in the manager or the, the rich man. He pinned him in so that he couldn't do anything else against him. And, and this is how he did it, is that these are all, all Jewish characters in here. And as Jesus refers to later, the, the law and the prophets, they lived by a certain code. It's in the Old Testament. And one of the things is, is that you did not charge interest to other Jewish people. Now, the Jewish rich man had gotten rich by charging interest to other Jewish people. And the way that he was doing that is he's lending out money and then he was changing bills into things like bushels of wheat and, and oil, uh, olive oil. And so that it didn't look like money, but he was still charging interest on that. And so what the shrewd manager does is go and he looks at the bill and says, I'm gonna take off the interest that you as a Jew repaying another Jew shouldn't have to pay anyways. And so uh, I'll, you know, so just in the future, if, if you get one, in one of these situations, go the route of olive oil versus bushels of wheat, okay? That guy got a 50% discount. The other one just got a 20% discount. But he lowered their bills by taking off the interest that he shouldn't be charging. And the rich guy could not take any counteraction against the manager or he would be exposed publicly for charging interest, which he wasn't supposed to do, and everybody would view him as unholy, and he didn't want to do that. So what he does is he goes, wink, wink, nod, nod, way to go. You got me. So you're out of a job because you wasted my money and were dishonest and irresponsible, but you used your last shift in my employ to make some really good decisions. That's what's going on here. Jesus says the people of this world are often more shrewd than the people of light. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you're a person of light in Jesus' telling here. He says, my people, the people that have my light in their lives. He's talking to his disciples. 
you guys, you guys can actually be more shrewd, more thoughtful, more wise, more prudent. It's fascinating that Jesus is just this blunt. Be, be more shrewd. But look at the next verse of what Jesus says. This is a really important one here. Verse nine. Again, Jesus' words. I tell you, use worldly wealth, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Let's just be honest here. In English, let's translate. Use money to get friends because heaven. Like something like that, right? Like that's what this looks like. And this is in, I mean, this is in our Bibles and we're to be formed by it. And this is, okay, this is Jesus in red letters. It's Jesus talking. I use a thing called commentaries when I, when I study and prep, our, our teaching team does. And um, this, this one, when I, when I open to this text to start studying for this text, and again, we're in this book of Luke and we're just moving through it. Um, and, and I got, you know, I, I'm in charge of the teaching calendar and that kind of thing. So I unknowingly assigned this to myself. And I opened up these books called commentaries. And the first line in every section of this was, this is the most difficult parable of Jesus. This is the most difficult parable. All, all of them said the same thing. It was super encouraging. This is the verse it's talking about. Because when we read this, it sure sounds like Jesus is saying, use money to gain friends. And, and some of us are like, yeah, I already do that. <laughs> like, I've, I've figured that out. That's worked really well. I, I, I started in like seventh grade. And, you know, I, I would buy, a, you know, an extra, you know, nachos for my buddy. And then he would like, like me and introduce me to his. I mean, we've, we've done that, right? We've all done that in some way. We've used money or our possessions in, in some. Let's look at the words a little bit here because it means something a little bit different than what it looks like in, in just plain English. Worldly wealth, first, first of all, just like worldly wealth. We can easily read that and go, okay, that's just, that's, that's money, right? Um, it actually is unrighteous mammon. Unrighteous Mammon. Unrighteous is a word we, we are somewhat familiar with. Mammon is a word nobody ever uses, right? So unrighteous is basically, it's like abhorrent to God. It's the opposite of God. And then mammon is, is another word. And what it means is, get this, it's fascinating. In Aramaic, the word means that thing which we put our trust in. Oh, dang. That in which one puts trust. It's a little bit different than just money, Right? Jesus is saying, use the thing that I think is abhorrent in the way that it's used, that people put their trust in, and that maybe you even put your trust in. Use that to gain friends. So this is, this is a, a, a resource. It's, it, it's, got, it's, it's defined, it's limited, um, but it is a, it's a human resource. He titles this as, as unrighteous, which has more of an impact than just saying worldly, unrighteous, and then it's this thing that we end up putting our trust in. Not God, something else. Money, finances, stuff, possessions, material wealth, whatever it might be. Use that to gain, not just for people. Use that for relationships. Use that for human beings. Use this for people. So when it's gone, and, it, and we read gone and we get that, yeah, yeah, money runs out, right? 
the word there actually means when it fails. When it fails. So the thing that we put our trust in sometimes is going to fail because it can't hold our trust. The thing that we want it to do, right? What? Security? Uh, friends? Um, security? Oh, I already said that one. Pleasure? Fun? The, all of the things that we want wealth to do, we end up putting our trust in it and expecting it to do for us much more than it possibly can do. It can't actually fulfill us in the deep ways that we, we, we get caught up wanting it to sometimes. And so it's not just that it's gone, that it runs out, it's that it fails. So when it fails, what? You will have a place, an eternal dwelling. And it's not just in heaven, like after we die. The words are endless, eternal, and there's no end. And dwelling is where God is, where God is. Think back to Jesus' words that we started with. The good news of the kingdom are being preached now. What are those good words? That the kingdom is at hand. At hand means what you can reach. It's this close. The kingdom is this close to each and every one of us. God has come near, that God is here. So Jesus is not saying gain friends because heaven later. Jesus is saying in the here and now, in our days, in our weeks, or like last week, when the, I think it's now being called the second biggest bank failure in the U.S. happened, when mammon, that thing we put our trust in too often, fails, we'll actually be with God. Not later on, but, but in the here and now. Jesus is saying, look around you. People put their trust in the money that they can gain. And he's gonna, he's gonna look exactly at the Pharisees next and say, you love money and confront them. But Jesus is saying to them, money will fail you. And so if you use it, not as the thing that can hold your trust, but if you can use it to serve people, when it fails, like we all know it will, you'll be with God. You'll be doing the things that God cares about. You'll be involved in, you'll be focused on, you'll be seeing the things that God cares about and is right there with you. That is entirely different than use your cash to make friends because heaven. That's entirely different than that. What it does is it causes us to take our focus off of money and to put it on human beings. And let me, let me tell you a, a secret, and you can write this down. God's highest priority other than himself is me and you. God's most cherished thing in all of the universe is us. Not our bank accounts, not our cars, not the quality of vacations we have, not the clothes that we buy. It, it's us. He cares more about people than anything else. And he's inviting us in to his work and how he is. So that when we see people, we see the most valuable thing God sees. And he's saying, use everything that you have to love and care for people, including mammon. And you can actually leverage that in a really good and creative and effective way if you're more shrewd and more risky and more ingenious and more thoughtful and more wise. You can actually use this resource that is limited and that is gonna go away and that will fail, but you can use it for good 
when you've got it. But it requires that we see people as God sees people and that we see wealth in the way that God sees wealth. And we are so often redefining both of those and that we need more money and that people get in the way of that. I love this. It's often read, you may have heard it before, but it's a, it's a quote by C.S. Lewis. And it, what it does for me, and I hope it does for you, is it gives a little glimpse into who you are and who I am. It's from his book called The Weight of Glory. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, lowercase g. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. It's C.S. Lewis's artful way of saying, gosh, a person isn't just a person that you pass on the street, but they're a human being that God intentionally, carefully created and made. And what if you used all of your creativity all of your wisdom, all of your thoughtfulness to use whatever resources you have to care for, love, and support other people. Now, for some of us, we see faces and names and we know immediately who that can be. And for others of us, what we realize is that, oh, man, people are a huge inconvenience for me. Some of us have a vision for who we can care for in a new way. And others feel a twinge of conviction of who we've ignored or snubbed or even exploited. Jesus says this to close. Whoever can be trusted with very little can, can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will, tr who will trust you with true riches? He's talking about the good news of the kingdom. And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either we hate the one or love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money, or God and mammon. Then the Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people highly value is detestable in God's sight. As we listen to Jesus' words, as we read scripture, as he forms our hearts and our minds, as we become formed by his truth, we actually see the world in very different ways. And hopefully we see people more like God sees people. That he's saying, how you handle money, how you handle wealth matters. 
And it matters because of what it can do. It can serve people. It can help people. You can use the resources in your power to serve and love other people. And in so doing, join with God's work in the world. One of the things that we're doing through Lent, we're doing a a number of different things. Adam mentioned earlier as we prayed for where we work in in our city and in our world. um, We're meeting at, there's just an open invitation at 9.30 on Sundays to come into this room and we just pray together before our gathering starts at 10 a.m. Another thing that we're doing is using this time in our gatherings as we come to this table in front of us, this communion table um, as a time of confession. And if you haven't heard us say it before, hear hear it now. Confession, it means agreeing with God, that we're agreeing with God. Oftentimes, and it's true, that to confess something means that we've done something wrong. We're agreeing with God that we've done something wrong. Confession can also mean that we're agreeing with God. I confess that you are this type of a God, that this is who you are. It's saying true things in that way. As you come this morning, would you confess Where is it that money has gotten a hold of you in a way that you're trusting it more than God? Whether you're relying on it more than God, where you're asking it to do things for you that it's not intended to do and that it keeps failing you and letting you down. Would you consider confessing that that's a whole new stretch of faith for you to trust in God more than money? Would you confess where you've seen people as less than the splendor beings that God has created us to be. And maybe that's a name and a face or a type or a group or a segment of society. Would you also consider confessing that you wanna use whatever is at your disposal when it comes to worldly money and wealth to join with God in his kingdom work in this world? There's a cup of juice that represents Jesus' blood shed for me and for you and a cracker represented his body broken and he invites us to do this on a regular basis it's a way that he forms our hearts and minds with him and so we're going to sing now and as you're ready would you come and take a cup and a cracker you can take it here you can walk to the side you can kneel in front you can go return to your seat however you want to take it you were free to do that but let's come to this table and confess and be reminded of the great forgiveness and grace that Jesus offers us readily, extravagantly, over and over and over again.